Hello and welcome to the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Arnudian. With the massive population growth, cities are facing enormous challenges, especially with housing, building climate resilience, transportation networks, and addressing the needs of working people. So how are mayors and others doing in facing these challenges? Doug Becker explores. I'm Doug Becker. As populations have grown, more and more people move into urban areas. Cities are larger now than ever and face unique challenges. From building resilience from weather exacerbated by climate change to managing housing, transportation networks, and then just in general space, city governments have to promote efficiency, but also address issues of culture, of the city's history, and probably most importantly, questions of justice. In our first segment, we will focus on sustainability and the challenges climate change pose to the city. In this segment, our panel is Stephen M. Wheeler. He's professor in the Landscape Architecture Program of the Department of Human Ecology at the University of California, Davis. He's the co-author of Reimagining Sustainable Cities, Creating Equitable, Healthy, and Ecological Communities. His co-author is Christina Rosen. And he's the author of Climate Change and Social Ecology, A New Perspective on the Climate Challenge. And Carmen Siriani, he's the Morris Hillquit Professor of Labor and Social Thought and also Professor Emeritus of Sociology and Public Policy at Brandeis University. He's the author of Sustainable Cities and American Democracy and Civic Democracy and Climate Action, Engagement and Policy for a Resilient America. Thank you both very, very much for joining us. And uh, Steve Wheeler, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with you. Building sustainable cities and creating equitable and healthy ecological communities. What are some of the biggest challenges that cities face when addressing these issues? Thank you for having me, Doug, and thank you for hosting the show. I am going to do my best to take the radical perspective here. And I am going to suggest that. Yeah, we have a lot of problems, such as homelessness, such as the climate crisis, such as worsening inequities, etc. But these are symptoms of underlying systemic failure. Uh, we have a lot of social systems that are not working well that well, and much of it goes back to capitalism. Much of it goes to the value structure that we have in American society and also in other, many other societies uh, at which we prize profit over a whole lot of other things that matter much more. Uh, we have a healthcare system that's not working well. We have a, a housing system that's not working well. We have an economic system uh, that's not working well. We have a political system that's not working well. All of these affect cities and suburbs and exurbs. Um, yeah, most problems are pretty urban these days because that's where most people live. And by urban, we mean generally the whole metropolitan area, which is not just the traditional center city, but it's all the suburbs and increasingly exurbs, uh, which are linked. Uh, and there has been, there are many, many issues with all of those. There are institutional issues we have an enormous amount of fragmentation of jurisdictions in urban areas, for one thing, which makes it very difficult for people to get together and solve problems. And it means that 
Some jurisdictions steal tax base and resources from others and worsen inequities, and so things uh, get worse. Anyway, um, that is my basic perspective. I'm happy to talk about any of those particular um, topics that you'd like, but my feeling is that we have structural failure in a number of pretty major ways, and what we really need are people to challenge that. We need people to start talking about new economic systems or major revisions to capitalism. We need to talk about how democracy could really work much better. We could, um, how healthcare, every other system could work much better. We need more AOCs and Bernies and other people putting really different visions out there. And um, then we have the possibility of change. And I think the climate crisis will help leverage that opening of the window for change. And uh, Carmen Siriani, Steve lays down more foundational challenge to cities and questions of sustainability, ultimately seeing it really much more about capitalism, uh, perhaps a democracy deficit, but really at its core, capitalism. Is it more of a foundational question or is the real challenge with cities ensuring democratic governance, ensuring that populations are fully represented and that we can actually address the challenges to cities with more democracy? Well, both. <laughs> okay. I mean, I don't disagree with Steve that we need to look at each of these, you know, grand and, you know, other large systems critically and think about how to reform them, transform them in some cases. But my perspective tends to be, you know, a kind of pragmatic democratic institutionalism. Where can we get a handle? And I'm focusing particularly on the engagement piece, civic engagement piece. Where can we get a handle through what kinds of civic associations, organizing models, but also how those can be aligned with administrative institutions, you know, collaborative projects, et cetera. Um, and so I think, you know, uh, at least the way we've initially laid this out is that, you know, we could go up and down a scale. I choose to sort of go down and towards the middle. And unless I can see those transformative things at the grander scale and how to politically get there, I tend to say, you know, I mean, and that's where I came from originally. I mean, I'm, you know, uh, go back. I was a Marxist when I went to college. Uh, I've been a critical theorist and an organizer, a labor organizer, an anti-war. So, I, I mean, I come from those perspectives. Um, but over the years, I, I've kind of chosen to both think and work with various people in government and civic institutions at those lower or intermediate levels. When I began working with the EPA as a result of work with the Clinton White House in the 90s and then into the early 2000s, I had a chance to be the academic advisor of an EPA project called Community Action for a Renewed Environment, 
which developed 100 partnerships nationwide. And it grew out of the environmental justice movement and the emergence of a collaborative environmental justice frame, not denying the kinds of things that Steve would say we need to change much more fundamentally, and then you would too, I think, uh, about environmental justice. But how can we build capacity so that local groups, you know, with ambitious justice norms can begin to grapple with the transportation, the toxics, the health impacts of environment and now climate. And that lasted for five. It was only a demonstration program. I thought it was pretty good for the most part. I mostly learned from it rather than shaping it. I mean, I think I helped somewhat. But in the the CARE grant model became part of various proposals working their way through Congress at the end of the Trump administration and essentially, without the, using this term, became part of the Inflation Reduction Act of three plus billion dollars going to various kinds of collaborative projects at the local level that were either given directly to local community groups, community development, environmental justice, or to various levels of government who were expected to collaborate with them. Now, those are new. You know, I mean, we still we're just beginning to get out the money and implement them. Um, but what I see there is a trajectory of kind of genuine learning, both at the grassroots level and at the administrative level, and in some cases with stakeholder groups around the country. So for me, that's a big thing. I would like five, 10, 20 more of those kinds of things seeded in all the areas that Steve really knows well and Christina in their wonderful book. Um, and Christina helped out on a, on a project that we did together a couple of years ago. So, I mean, that's why I would kind of come in slightly different angle. Or... Yeah, no, absolutely. And at the end of the day, I guess part of the question is how do we conceptualize cities? How do we conceptualize these issues? And then what do we do about it and the kind of the, the process uh, orientation? So the fact we have both of you on here with these two different approaches, I think can be incredibly valuable. Steve, one issue that from a personal perspective, whenever I've engaged city officials, one of the things that I found really particularly apparent here in Los Angeles is the role of development that developers tend to play a pretty substantial role within city government. There is a bias in favor of let's build more stuff, let's develop. And it sure seems like frequently it's a group of citizens who get described as a bunch of NIMBYs that don't want development. And the developer usually has the access to the city government. I guess the question here then is, is this a process problem? because obviously somebody has to fund city campaigns, et cetera. Or is it a bigger kind of fundamental question about cities are expected to grow and they're expected to develop? And then we'll deal with the consequences later. There was kind of an either or there that I'm not sure I totally buy. Yes, there is a growth machine in cities. A growth machine is a term in sociology going back to the, at least the 1980s, maybe the 1970s, which is a constellation of Developers, real estate people, banks, um, um, officials, title companies that all promote development. And, um, you know, they are working within the capitalist system and making money on it. And that exists most every in most every city and town. 
and they're going back a long way. Babbitt, in you know, the Sinclair Lewis novel a hundred years ago, you know, is a description of that back then. Um, it is not necessarily bad in all cases. It has fueled suburban sprawl, but there are different versions of the growth machine promoting infill development these days. Um, there is a whole uh, nonprofit affordable housing sector that has grown in the last generation, maybe generation or two at this point. Um, people coming out of universities uh, with urban planning degrees and other degrees who see the housing problem and found nonprofits and uh, take advantage or piece together funding from all sorts of public and private sources and build these days pretty nice multi-story buildings for various uh, low-income or otherwise uh, disadvantaged populations. So, uh, and then there are private sector developers who are also doing pretty good infill. So, uh, and there is political effort to overcome nimbyism, to get around the parochial opposition to any sort of affordable housing or change, particularly in wealthy neighborhoods. And we have a lot of change going on right now in American cities and towns. We have the element of single family housing, single family zoning, which has been sacrosanct for close to 100 years, um, being thrown out the window by many states and cities, uh, including California, Oregon. I think the first city was Minneapolis on a sizable scale, but um, uh, because we've realized that that prevents, if you lock up 75% of the landscape that way, you are not gonna have enough housing. And we can have multiple units on those single family lots without negatively affecting the look and feel and function of neighborhoods. And we need not to be so parochial. So there's a lot of change bubbling up in cities. That being said, there are lots of obstacles still. No, absolutely. And Carmen, how much of this question then is the lack of engagement of a lot of the local communities? I teach a course in negotiation. And uh, one of the things I always like to say is if, the, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And so how much of this is a question about who's at the table and whose voices are at least being heard and hopefully a part of the conversation? I think in what Steve was saying, he's absolutely right that there's certain forms of engagement that are not necessarily that productive or they're understandable, but, you know, um, we have to figure out ways of moving beyond them and, and reframing them. So I completely agree with that. And so it's a combination of local groups organizing and putting pressure, but also then learning how to work with others learning how to work with accountable city systems. I'll give an example of that in a second, maybe. And then, you know, taking on some, you know, pretty tough challenges that are not going to be, you know, easy to do for anybody, such as, you know, coastal resilience in metropolitan areas where the amount of assets at risk, the amount of movement of populations, of financial systems at risk uh, with storms, destruction, et cetera, et cetera, is, is going to be huge. So we definitely need to be very inventive. Now, that said, let me give a little example of what some people probably wouldn't have seen as all that inventive, Portland, Oregon, 
back in the 70s. I know <laughs> Steve knows it well and probably heard tired of me pointing to it. But, you know, a system of neighborhood associations, you know, city helped support them financially and, and institutionally. But they had all kinds of problems, you know, because they didn't engage lots of, you know, minority groups, new immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, decades long struggle to expand that. Um, meanwhile, the city, however, did leverage some of that work into becoming the first city that developed a climate action plan and was in the global ICLE Sustainable Cities Network. Um, and then it still took even more time, and we don't have that much time, but more time where the city said, okay, you know, we want environmental justice groups at the table in the planning process. And, you know, we're not just going to put out a call, come to a meeting. These are the groups that we want to sit in the planning sessions with the planners to get their perspective and we want to see them do deep relational organizing. And so within the last few years, in fact, this year, I believe this 23, 2023, they, you know, just approved this. I think it's, if, you know, off the top of my head, $750 million of local funding that will go to community-based projects in which community organizations, including a lot of environmental justice groups, will have a say and you know and that's not federal money that's city money and or city and county i'm not you know positive how that works there and if you had looked at the portland system 20 years ago a lot of people would have said ah, these are just you know old style neighborhood associations that will never break out of their narrow boundaries well that's i mean it's certainly a lot of the nimbyism that steve mentioned is still there people are very you know on all kinds of things very nimby defensive but there are ways of opening it up and go back to steve's point you know on planners coming out a lot of planners are coming out and, and this is in my the new book i have coming out which I make a case for all of the professions that have anything to do with climate change need to be figuring out how do we teach and practice robust engagement, you know, of various sorts, because they need to be partners. Um, we can't just, you know, depend on those well-meaning people who came through movements and got, you know, radicalized or whatever in their profession. We need to have this running through. And that's I mean, it's hard to do. But we can do it. To me, it's a feasible thing that's potentially transformative. And if we don't do it in the next five years, we definitely need to do it in the next 20 years or 30 years. Mm. And we're going to have to really be grappling with incredibly tough resilience challenges. And you're listening to Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Doug Becker. We're discussing the challenges of cities and in particular on questions of, of sustainability, and of governance, of justice questions with Steve Wheeler of the University of California, Davis, and Carmen Siriani of Brandeis University. And Steve, since Carmen had made this reference to the need to act quickly, and certainly because of the climate challenge, we they're taking this questions about climate resilience, you know, city resilience, how are cities responding to the challenges that climate change pose for us? It's directed a lot of attention and a lot of need to act, but the challenge is quite profound. In what ways has the climate challenge altered 
the way in which cities view some of these issues and how best can cities start to build resilience, start to build some degree of adaptability to the fact that the climate change isn't something, something that's happening in the future. It's something that's happening right now. The climate challenge is just beginning to bite on cities. Yeah, it's been around for a while. We've known it's been happening for well over a century. And there were some cities in the 1980s that started doing, in 90s, um, city energy offices and climate offices, thinking a little bit about it. Since the mid-2000s, we've had more state mandates. We've had gradual requirements for climate to be studied within various state-level environmental review. Uh, in California, we've had, you know, a very strong state climate planning framework set up, which is supposed to support local action and which does have targets for each metro area and for reducing emissions and changing land use and reducing transportation, the VMT, the vehicle miles traveled, the amount of traffic that exists and puts out emissions. Uh, some of it's working, some of it's not. And the stuff that's done at city level um, is probably not quite as far along as some of the state level actions. States are doing pretty well at requiring utilities to change um, where electricity is generated, uh, renewable portfolio requirements, which are done at larger scales than the city. Um, are gradually forcing utilities to buy more solar and wind and install those and uh, get rid of coal and other things. So that's one of the bigger success areas. Depends on the part of the country, of course, but everywhere is starting to follow that path. Uh, actually changing land use and transportation patterns um, and housing, uh, not quite so much. That's a longer term process and the resistance is bigger at the local level. Many cities are doing adaptation plans. Adaptation is easier. It's less political. Um, you plant a lot of trees. So there are a number of U.S. cities that have had million tree programs in the last decade or two, you know, to shade parking lots and streets and keep the city cooler. Um, not too hard to, well, it's hard to actually get the trees to survive. And they haven't done that well in L.A., for example. But um you know, you can put in your zoning ordinance that any new parking lot has to be 50% shaded within 10 years. And okay, that's a code change that hopefully will bring about adaptation. We can also think about flooding. Um, new York City's had to do that a lot after Sandy. And fire in California, we have to think about that a lot. And that's a whole separate discussion. Um, but the adaptation things um, are definitely getting some traction. Um, but actually um, reducing citywide emissions in California, particularly, or on the West Coast, where the climate is milder, the majority of emissions come from motor vehicles. And that really gets into lifestyle change. Yes, the vehicle fleet is electrifying slowly, but too slowly. Um, you know, we need, you know, to move faster on emissions. And driving has gone up. Um, yes, it went down during the after the Great Recession and during the pandemic, but in California at least it's it's edging up again. And as long as we keep driving more, even if the fleet is becoming more electric, um, 
emissions are going to keep probably keep rising. That is something that's very tough for local governments to get a handle on. It's primarily a state or a national framework. And so some of these biggest sources are the toughest to deal with. I think I'll stop there and see if Carmen wants to maybe add anything. Carmen, in particular, how much can cities do and how much does this require some real national state level and national leadership to be able to make some of these changes? You know, we need it all. Often people at the local level are, you know, using opportunities or creating opportunities where nothing's happening or very little support, you know, from the federal government. On the other hand, that Steve is right about state planning in California and, uh, you know, how important that has been. You know, even the Marine Life Protection Act and, you know, the EJ environmental justice work through the state. From what I know, we had Mike Boswell and um, Tammy Seal, you know, who are uh, active at on the California level in terms of climate planning and some of the resilience work and getting some of that stuff, including working with the EJ Alliance, you know, into the state. And then now, and Steve, I'm sure knows a lot more than I do, by the fund that's become available to be used for communities as a result of the, you know, the Global Salute, whatever, Climate Solutions Act back in the first decade. I just think there's a lot of opportunity to push. There are, of course, all the systemic obstacles that Steve hinted at and could have gone on and on, right, pointing them out. And especially what he said, you know, about urban growth machines, et cetera, you know, profound and resistant in so many ways. But, you know, again, I would, for young people, work in transforming, the, greening the university and learning all this stuff, the climate, some kind of conservation core work, which didn't get the funding that, you know, we had hoped in the Inflation Reduction Act, but got some and Biden's going forward. I mean, again, this is another area where tens of thousands, if not more, young people after college or during or before college, et cetera, or after high school can become part of climate core, fire core, you know, response, FEMA core, and do really, really good things. And young people, at least in some cities, have been brought to the table in just creative, playful, wonderful ways. They have all kinds of tech skills, including not just, you know, social media, but, you know, GIS skills, mapping, mapping and story skills and all these things that we can do to enrich the public conversation and move people forward. And again, bringing toolkits to the table to say, I can show you with others how we can do this, right? My last question at this point is, what are the ways in which Perhaps we should reconceptualize, you know, rethink our relationship within cities. When we're living in urban areas, what should be our priorities? Is this really a question of reconceptualizing what the city is meant to do and what our role is within the city? Or is this just managing these crises as these come up? Well, yes, I think we need to be positive. We need to be constructive and figure out how to pull together as communities. 
across all the lines that have divided us. Now that's going to vary uh, from person to person on what exactly they do, depending on their interests and skills and background and where they happen to be. But there's always something interesting to do locally. Sometimes we just work very locally at our, you know, on our given yard or house or neighborhood or street. Sometimes we can scale it up a bit citywide or across a metro area. Um, the opportunities are going to vary depending on context, but seeing ourselves as a community that is building alternatives to Western capitalist society, which is headed down this road towards unsustainability globally, thinking of lives that have a much lower impact, a much lower carbon footprint, equity footprint, any other kind of footprint, sharing resources, supporting one another, both psychologically, community-wise, maybe even financially, who knows? New forms of housing, cooperatives of different sorts, uh, co-housing, various sorts of shared living situations. We need to be creative. We need to think outside the box. Um, and I think we will. The window of change, the so-called Overton window, is um, going to open, I believe, in the next generation because of the huge the climate crisis and other huge global crises, including populism and democracy. So we will have more latitude to bring new ideas in, and we need to generate those, go into the streets and push for them. I am an activist, and, and I've, we all play many different roles at different times. Yes, I and I totally support everything Carmen has been working on. Um, when I was in my early 20s, I wore three-piece suits in Washington, D.C. I was a lobbyist, um, you know, trying to work within the system. But there needs to be some opposition also. We have a movement within the University of California system to get the UC system off of fossil fuels. We are challenging the administration. We are doing petition drives, protests of different sorts, um, going in, talking to chancellors. We got our chancellor at UC Davis to agree finally to reduce emissions 80% by 2030. That was a major step forward. We are working with the state. I work with environmental groups that are trying to get Caltrans, our big transportation agency, to stop widening freeways and building new ones, because that is just going to take us further down the road of more motor vehicle use and more emissions. So we are going to sue them um, on the widening Interstate 80, our local interstate. We are also strategically organizing to put pressure on the government. governor. We are doing op-eds in the newspapers. We are getting reporters to do pieces. We are building campaigns. So Carmen's uh, approaches within institutions in wonderful ways. My approach tends to be in the streets in other ways or you know the media or other pieces. Both are necessary and let's get out there and change the world. I think it's a great place to, uh, to end this segment. Our panel today has been Steve Wheeler. He's a professor in the Landscape Architecture Program at the Department of Human Ecology at the University of California, Davis. He's the co-author of Reimagining Sustainable Cities, Creating Equitable, Healthy, and Ecological Communities. His co-author with that is Christina Rosen. And he's also the author of Climate Change and Social Ecology, A New Perspective on the Climate Challenge. And Carmen Siriani 
Morris Hillquist Professor of Labor and Social Thought and Professor Emeritus of Sociology and Public Policy at Brandeis University. He's the author of Sustainable Cities in American Democracy and Civic Democracy and Climate Action, Engagement and Policy for Resilient America. Thank you both very, very much for joining us. When we come back, many cities are facing housing challenges at crisis levels. What can be done to be sure people in cities have adequate housing? Stay with us. This is the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. Across the United States, many cities are grappling with an enormous housing crisis as homelessness reaches unprecedented levels. What are the best ways to solve these problems? Doug Becker explores. I'm Doug Becker. Housing is perhaps the most important issue cities face. As places of residence, city dwellers' most essential question is whether they can afford to live in the city in which they work and whether the housing is adequate to meet their needs. So in this segment, we will explore urban housing with a focus on affordability, on access, how cities manage those issues and avoid the crises of the unhoused and the underhoused that so many cities have faced. Our guest is Luis Quintero. He is assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Cary Business School. He co-directs the Latin American and the Caribbean Economics Association, Urban Economics Network, and is a research fellow at the 21st Century Cities Initiative at Johns Hopkins. He's the co-author of Measuring the Value of Rent Stabilization and Understanding Its Implications for Racial Equality, Evidence from New York City, and Cities and Productivity, Evidence from 16 Latin American and Caribbean countries. Professor Quintero, Luis, if I may, um, thank you very much for joining us. Of course, Douglas. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'm really happy to talk about this important topic. I guess we'll start off nice and broad. Lots of cities have problems of unhoused and uh, and underhoused. Lots of people living on the streets and living in inadequate housing. What are the main causes? What are the main drivers of this crisis? This is a very multifaceted and complex problem, right? And is an economic, but also a human rights problem. Living in the city where you work has been something that we have taken for granted historically. And it's only in the last few decades where we've seen uh, a growth in this problem that we call housing unaffordability to the point that a lot of people would like to move to cities where they could work, where they could be more productive, where they could have better life opportunities. And it is just not enough how much they make to be able to move there. I would summarize you know this this uh, multi-dimensional issue uh, of housing unaffordability um, on a supply problem you know it, we can we can go over the details and different aspects uh, related to it but I would say one of the biggest problems especially in American urban centers is that we demand more housing that we are producing and therefore prices are very high 
And aspect of it is that we are not producing a logical problem because of restriction of resources. It's mostly because we are not allowing the market to produce as much as they would. And, you know, I would summarize the main factors in two. One of them is uh, regulation preventing more supply. And another one is um, lack of competition among developers. Let's focus on the policy questions. This, you know, the way in which zoning sometimes can have a profound impact, the way in which cities try to manage exactly, you know, how much housing. And in particular, so many cities really want single family dwellings. How significant is that? That One of the reasons why we don't have enough housing is that we have city officials that simply don't want to build enough. That's, I would say, the main driving factor. We are familiar with the U.S. system of city planning where we allow basically neighborhoods to the side. You know, you, you, you point out city officials, but normally zoning boards and, you know, uh, zoning areas are even narrower than cities. And we're allowing basically, you know, small neighborhoods to define what can be built in in their location. What this does is, of course, it allows or it focuses on the protection of the interests of those who are already living um, in these neighborhoods. But it doesn't really take into account the interests of those who are either... Uh, interested in moving into that place or already in that place, but but uh, unhoused or just in general having a hard time affording a home. So uh, this is not the way housing is usually regulated in other places in the world. We we just are very accustomed to it in the U.S. Uh, of having this extreme decentralization. So what this extreme decentralization does is basically, uh, as I mentioned before, allowing the people who want to preserve their home values to decide whether anything else could be added or built in the places where they live. Uh, This is, of course, ignoring the interests of not only the people who are outside of that neighborhood, uh, but the people who are inside that neighborhood and perhaps are, for example, renting and and, and are having trouble uh, affording those units. So, yeah, city governance and regulation are definitely at the core of this problem. Now we've got an obvious almost irony here because if the concern is about housing values, you know, it's about how much your home, you know, might be worth, certainly building multi-unit housing may have a negative effect on how much your housing's worth, but a large unhoused population will have an even more negative effect on how much your your housing is worth. So, I guess part of the challenge then is it seems that we have this large unhoused population, but these local populations then simply want to figure out ways to move the population as opposed to giving them homes. And right. Is that fair to, to describe in the United States? That's fair. And, you know, let's not forget that historically there's been other reasons why people have, you know, tried to prevent construction of multifamily homes. If we look at the recent history of the United States, you know, uh, this is a way, this, this came directly from racial covenants. And it was a way in which white uh, middle and upper income families, a way in which they could prevent minority households from moving into their neighborhoods. And it was very uh, explicitly racial. After it became illegal, then these zoning 
regulations that prevented more affordable housing to be built was the shortcut way to prevent more housing to be built and preventing these types of populations that they you know, deemed undesirable to move uh, and become their neighbors. As you point out, what this is discussing is uh, on one end, there's a large share of the population who's not moving to the urban centers um, where, where they may, would have better job opportunities. But on the other end, there are some who had been living in these urban centers and stopped being able to afford housing and then they become homeless. And as you're pointing out, you know, with the desire of preserving home values, they actually end up reducing home values. And in general, just reducing the uh, quality of life, not only of the unhoused, but also of the people, um, you know, that live among them in, in a city. So now you've actually highlighted two huge urban challenges. One is the unhoused challenge, but also the working class in particular, not being able to afford to live near the city center having to move further and further out. So now we've got our transportation networks. You've, I'm in Los Angeles, so urban sprawl and traffic are two of the just facts of life out here. And that's so true in, in so many areas. So the short-sightedness leading to some significant challenges, livability challenges, and then obviously everybody's driving climate resilience, you know, climate you know, mitigation challenges as well. And I like how you highlighted this was rooted in the history of you know, racial segregation and, and racial restrictions. A lot of that's still continuing. So is the secret here better city planning and maybe maybe a little bit less democracy if the democracy means really empowering communities <laughs> to be able to make all these choices based on their short-sightedness? That, that is the, the key policy issue. And I wouldn't want to call it less democracy, right? Because it's, uh, you know, in general, we, we're always striving for more democracy. But this is a different type of democracy. In economics, we call it externalities, right? Something that you do that causes a negative impact on others. And those others are not really making that decision. So when, for example, uh, you drive a very polluting car, you're not only polluting your own air, you're polluting somebody else's air. And so it is not really more democratic, but actually less democratic to allow you to decide, you know, how much, you know, decide freely how much of the everybody else's air you can pollute. And that's why we have, you know, regulations that prevent you from being able to pollute air freely. Well, this is something similar to the housing issues that you're pointing out. If we only allow uh, you know, very narrowly defined neighborhoods to define how much housing is being built. They're just leaving out everyone else who is also a citizen of, of that city um, that should also have the opportunity to vote on what happens in, in their city and to be able to, um, you know, have the opportunity that others had decades ago to move in and get um, affordable housing. So it is a different way of thinking about democracies, uh, making it broader and not necessarily um, imposing it, but let, letting everyone that is interested, including those potential homeowners, uh, manifest uh, you know, the, their interests and their concerns. You think of, uh, for example, the case of a uh, recent case of uh, Minneapolis, where people were asked 
to vote on this single family zoning ban, right? The question was, uh, do you want the city to ban any uh, or, or to to make illegal a uh, type of zoning that only allows uh, single family homes to be built? And the whole city voted yes. They voted against these types of bans. Of course, there were people in uh, individual neighborhoods that were interested in all of these, you know, in, you know, preserving home values and everything we've talked about before. And um, they they voted against it, but the majority of the people realized that they were being hurt by this and therefore voted for it. So it wasn't that, you know, they weren't allowed to decide. It, it was just a way of asking um, a broader definition of the population interested in what happens in the city to decide uh, besides only those that are already incumbent, already owners, and already living in the places that are the most desirable. And you can extend this idea to um, something bigger than cities. You know, there's recent research that shows that the places where um, the biggest economic opportunities are offered are the places where most people cannot uh, move and work. So, you know, a typical case, a very, you know, notorious case is um, the Bay Area, you know, San Francisco mainly. Uh, it is a place where there is a shortage of employees in all sectors and they cannot move there because they cannot uh, live there and they cannot live there because the people in the city who also need their services uh, are not letting them uh, move in by implementing very restrictive uh, construction limitations. No, absolutely. And on this question of centralization, we've focused on city planning, city decisions with this, but also um, the development of housing itself is quite centralized, correct? And that's having an impact on on the cost of housing and the availability of housing. Uh, that's That's definitely a big issue. So that is something that I've been very interested in, and I've been studying that very closely. As most of this uh, had been going on for decades, but as a result of the Great Recession, um, we know that you know the Great Recession was a big hit to housing developers. As a result of that, uh, the housing crisis in two thousand, you know, I would say two thousand seven, two thousand eight, caused the disappearance or the exit of the market of many small developers. So as a consequence, um, the big developers, the big builders uh, remained in the market. And so in some of these uh, national markets where they were building maybe 30 or 40% of the uh, units, of the new units, um, after the disappearance of these smaller uh, developers, they ended up building 60, 70, 80% of the units in, in one market. We worry about this because um, the lack of competition brings monopolistic power and the ability to raise prices and withhold supply. And these are two things that happen simultaneously, right? One of the ways in which you can increase prices is make your um, good or service scarce uh, and, and that way you withhold supply and make it less affordable. Um, normally in markets, what we have is the threat of competition. Right, you make your good less affordable, and so uh, new developers move in, or new suppliers of any good or service, they move in, and then they, um, you know, compete with you and offer lower prices. Um, 
for many reasons, including the regulation restrictions, this is not happening. Um, I, I recently um, testified in a hearing in Congress about competition in the housing market. And in preparation for that, I started studying the correlation between prices and um, number of developers in housing markets in the US. And um, even though housing prices since 2011 have completely recovered and started growing above the levels we had before the Great Recession, the number of developers that are active in the U.S. housing market uh, remains at around 35 to 40 percent of the numbers we had uh, before the Great Recession. So, you know, this this good thing that we have in markets, which is the the threat of competition that prevents people from just charging whatever they want for their uh, uh, products is not happening in the in the housing market and we we can discuss why this isn't happening but um it goes exactly to what you are saying there's fewer and fewer developers um that are surviving in the market they are building larger and larger shares of whatever uh little housing is being built and uh, uh they are you know through things like mergers they are becoming more and more powerful um in the market and through you know, political influence on the regulatory process, they're making themselves uh, the only players that know how to navigate uh, the complicated zoning restrictions that make it just uh, unfeasible for others to enter and compete. Thus far, we've been talking about what are the market mechanisms that are creating a housing crisis. And again, the basis being we don't have enough housing. So therefore, it's either too expensive, it's simply not available, etc. And so the problem is interventions into the market where we just don't have enough supply. This last question, last main topic I want to take on, though, um, is an intervention that's decidedly meant to address the market, sometimes it's described as un uncapitalistic, even more socialist, and that is uh, rent control. Obviously, one of the problems with housing is that, to quote the famous candidate for New York mayor a few years ago, the rent's too damn high. And if it <laughs> yeah. is that high, how effective is it when the city uh, puts in place rent controls, usually over the opposition and the cries of landlords and, and homeowners? How effective is rent control? That's a a key issue. So let me let me give me you know ten seconds to go back and just clarify one thing from the previous question about uh, regulation and zoning, right? So by no means I I would say that regulation, for example, environmental regulation, is not necessary. Uh, there there is a lot of regulation that is necessary to ensure, uh, you know, and and, and just in general. Uh, construction codes to ensure that the housing that we build um, is not hurting the environment and is not hurting uh, the people who are going to be living in it. Um, however, a lot of this regulation is just put in place to make it more difficult to produce. Now, let's go to your second point or to your current point, which is rent regulation. And that that's a great question. So um, uh, notoriously, there's uh, this this is a topic in which most economists agree um, and they're all against it, right? They basically um, worry and, or we basically worry 
that rent regulation is imposing perverse incentives for developers and and landlords um, in such a way that you know going into the future there's going to be less and less rental housing produced because people do not like uh, their ability to charge higher rents to be curbed by this policy and therefore less and less um, you know housing will be produced however um, Having said that and have, you know, acknowledging that that is a, a big problem in terms of, of rent uh, control, one of the things that I was uh, very worried about was, okay, let's acknowledge that, you know, this is, you know, less competitive and that this could bring in market distortions um, in general in the long term. What about the short run, right? Is, this, is, is rent stabilization really reducing rents enough? for the people that need it the most so that at least, you know, we can say, yes, it is distortionary of the market, but at least it is improving uh, the situations in terms of equity, right? It's not efficient, but it's equitable. Um, I, I published uh, a paper last year uh, specifically about that, where we look at the distribution of rent control benefits in New York City. What we find is that the people that you would expect to be receiving these benefits from rent control are not those that are necessarily receiving them, right? So uh, when people advocate for rent control, especially interest groups and politicians, they they worry about uh, low-income people, people with a, a lot of kids who have a lot of trouble paying for rent, uh, minority households, unemployed what we find in this study is that for for a few years, the main recipient of the highest uh, rent discount benefits from rent control were uh, white households with high education, uh, middle to high income located in the most affluent places of the city, specifically, you know, in, in Manhattan. So... So that, that is a big problem, right? You are already this, you are imposing distortions in the market uh, with at least the, the, the desire to have some benefits for those who need it the most. And here we have evidence that most of the benefits are going um, to those who do not necessarily need it. In recent years, the trends have changed a little bit and we see that um, minority households are getting a little bit more benefits, but that is mainly because of gentrification. In gentrifying neighborhoods, what you see is a lot of highly educated, high income, white households moving into places that were previously occupied in their majority, in its majority by uh, minority households. So um, remember that rent control, the way rent control works, rent control prevents the growth of rent over time. And as a consequence, uh, the benefits from rent control become larger and larger the longer you stay in the unit. So what is happening in these gentrific gentrifying neighborhoods is that people are being displaced, especially in minority households, and only a few can stay. And those surviving households are the ones that in the data show up as having these very large rent benefits. So I would kind of summarize it as... Yes, rent control does reduce the rent you are supposed to pay. However, it can have 
distortionary effects on the market, but it also doesn't really achieve its uh, equity goals. It is not necessarily going to those who are poor. It is just going to those who were uh, lucky enough to to get one, you know, one rent controlled apartment. Well, thank you very much for those insights. Our guest today has been Luis Quintero. He's assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Carey Business School. He co-directs the Latin American and Caribbean Economics Association Urban Economics Network and is a research fellow at the 21st Century Cities Initiative at Johns Hopkins University. He's the co-author of Measuring the Value of Rent Stabilization and Understanding Its Implications for Racial Equality, Evidence from New York City, and Cities and Productivity, Evidence from 16 Latin American and Caribbean Countries. Professor Quintero, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your insights. Thanks so much, Sabes. And that's it for today's program. Thank you for listening. The Scholar Circle is hosted by Doug Becker. Its managing producer is Ankina Agassian. Mejike Chechi is our assistant producer. Sad Dongre is our webmaster and assistant producer. Our archives are at scholarcircle.org. And our podcasts are on Apple and Google Podcasts and iTunes. Please follow us on at Scholar Circle or me at Armudian and join our Facebook page. I'm the founder, anchor, and occasional host, Maria Armudian.